Just a few film nerds breaking out of a rut Drooling over cinemas Max and Cassandra, manic pixie dream girls This week we're talking about Garden State Natalie Portman's kind of annoying when Zach Braff takes advantage. No agency. No Welcome to Measuring Flicks. And welcome to Cassandra Explains It All slash Drenched in Drama slash Manic Pixie Dream Girl series. I know. It's like the ultimate mashup. Our very first like legitimate crossover episode. I'm, I'm really excited. I was so happy when you pitched this idea to me. Like, well, how long ago was that? Like a year ago? Yes. So it's about good. Good call. It's been about a year. And. <laughs> For everybody listening who's like a listener of mine, um, they'll know because I'm doing a timeline of my life, which is psychotic. It's a very manic pixie thing to do. (laughs) But about a year ago, I was dating somebody and they would always refer to me as their manic pixie dust girl. And I'm like, what? What is it? Manic Pixie Dust? I don't think you're saying it right. <laughs> and I had to Google what I'm like, what is that? And then I, I Googled it and I saw what it meant in film. And I was like, oh, me and Max should do a series about this. <laughs> uh, and you were so right, too. Uh, this has been for the let's read the definition of it right up top so that everybody knows we're all on the same page but this is something that is like kind of been in me and bird's lexicon since about college so i'm just going from the wikipedia's uh a manic pixie dream girl is a stock character type in fiction usually depicted as a young woman with eccentric personality quirks who serves as the romantic interest for a male protagonist um, the term was coined by film critic Nathan Rabin after observing Kristen, Kirsten Dunst's character in Elizabethtown, 2005, which we will be covering next time. Uh, Rabin criticized the type as one-dimensional, existing only to provide emotional support to the protagonist or to teach him important life lessons while receiving nothing in turn. The term has since entered the general vernacular. I like that that definition. Um, Mm -hmm. I think one other aspect that you typically see with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is kind of like in relation to the male character because typically I feel like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl like motivates or stimulates action in an otherwise like passive, aimless, directionless male character. A lot of times they're like just floaty loser types who are like, I don't know what to do with my life and I don't understand things. And then they bump into this girl and it like changes everything and that... They're like the the like the matchstick that like lights the fuse that initiates the change that we see, like Kevin Spacey and American Beauty. Yes, I don't think I don't know if the like the daughter's friend is is a manic pixie dream girl character, but that's the idea. Yeah, like he's going through a midlife crisis and he's at at odds and he has no idea what's going on, and then he sees his daughter's teenage friend and it like reinterests him in life and he starts trying to like correct past mistakes so yeah if she had blue hair and was you know like learning to juggle and 
speaking fake languages or whatever being all wacky maybe closer to that character type okay yeah but yeah like you're saying like basically the girl doesn't exist except through the lens of the male character yeah i i think that's one of the defining characteristics of the manic pixie dream girl what the movie we're talking about today garden state i have like such mixed feelings about this movie because like i'm so the portrayal like natalie portman's character I have a lot of issues with it. At the same time, this movie is like it's it's college, man. It's like it's it just the soundtrack hits, the way it's shot, the cast. It just takes you right back to like a time and place, but at the same time, you're like there this is really problematic in a lot of ways. It's problematic and okay, I love I do love it. I'm not going to lie. I, know, I love I like this it too. movie. <laughs> But and there's a lot of good things about this movie and the production of this movie. Um, And I think Zach Braff gets so much shit for this movie that he doesn't deserve. Um, But Natalie Portman, like I didn't know it was possible to come out of a movie liking an actor or actress less. Right. And I (laughs) liked her so much less after watching this movie again. I'm like, oh, this is brutal. Like. I think this, this go ahead. Mm, sorry. The, just the acting was kind of rough. Yeah. And I don't know that it is the character or if it's her acting choices. Um, I th- almost think it says more about what she thinks of a manic pixie dream girl than Zach Braff. Like, I, I think this is something that you well, we're going to you will see this as we go through. I don't know if we finalized the slate, but I think that the movies we'll be talking about today. We're going to talk about Garden State. We'll be talking about it, definitely talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We did do a Measuring Flicks episode on it, but not specifically aimed at discussing Kate Winslet's character as a Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which I would love to dig into. She's one of the classic examples, my first mm-hmm. exposure to it. Um, and then we're doing Elizabeth Town. And then I, we were talking about doing um, Scott Pilgrim versus the World as kind of like the anti-manic pixie dream girl or like a deconstruction of that idea but i've been getting a lot of requests from measuring flicks listeners to do um 500 days of summer perfect because i've never seen it i haven't either so i think that would be a cool way to to finish it. i know so like (laughs) okay um yes but yeah so for those uh for those of you listening who are measuring flicks listeners rather than going through the film and like fully analyzing and breaking down the whole movie as i would typically do on an episode of measuring flicks watching garden state i really specifically honed in on elements of this character type i couldn't help myself there's some stuff where i'm like the camera move is so cool but yeah like mostly it's um i wanted to really like hone in on this specific character archetype and its implications in modern society but we were talking about how like when you come out of this you kind of don't like natalie portman as much which is crazy because she's so likable and she's so good in so many movies but i felt the same way next week when we talk about eternal sunshine and the spotless mind i'm going to say the same thing kate winslet is one of the most eminently lovable actresses and so talented like everything from like i believe oscar nominations for titanic all the way to like the mo- like melt your heart the holiday we- mm-hmm. sorry it was christmas recently and i watch it every single year like there's nothing that kate winslet's in that you don't like her in and then you watch eternal sunshine and you're like she's not very good there's something about that character how do- how do you act that though 
think when we get to Elizabethtown, we're going to find out. I just felt bad because I'm like, oh, I, yeah, this isn't as great as I remember. It's like when you endorse something so hard and you haven't seen it in 15 years and then you go back to watch it and you're like, oh, no, I've made a mistake. <laughs> oh, no. Well, Un- undo tweet. Undo tweet. Well, no. Yeah, exactly. But no, that shit lives forever. Uh, I mean, we have to do it because it's the origin point of the term. So we, we definitely yes. have to watch it. But. I'm really interested to see how it compares to this one. Um, well, so, oh. With Garden State, I will. this is what I want to say. Sure. Thomas Wolfe once said, you can't go home again. Mm-hmm. But you can, kind of, with this movie. This, this is where it gets me. I love to hate movies. I love to hate everything. But, like, <laughs> this movie just got right into my heart. It feels like a true coming home story. It like, does. It, this feels so real to me. It feels so nostalgic. So like right after high school, you see all your old buddies, you know, they're I don't robbing know. graves. It <laughs> brought me right back to that time period. Yeah. Just immediately back to that time period. And I am sure, like you said, like a lot of it is the soundtrack, which was very intentional and this is 2004. This is a time where like the soundtracks are starting to fade away. Like the amazing soundtracks of the 90s are starting to go away. Yeah. So it's probably one of the last great soundtracks we get for a few years. Well, there's we I still think that we occasionally get like really kick ass soundtracks. But like you're right. We do, We have kind of moved more into score nowadays where you're just going to score a film rather than like pick and I think that it's an intentional shift because I feel like a lot of directors feel that putting like a a soundtrack of contemporary music in your film dates that film you know like 20 years from now you go back and you hear that radio hit and you're like oh that song you don't know how bands are going to age like there's Pulp Fiction yeah, but so t- the, I think it works for Tarantino because he grabs from all decades and all eras. So like when you watch a you know Reservoir Dogs comes out in the nineties, uh, ninety four I want to say or ninety three, and then you know you've got songs that are from like the fifties and sixties in there. So it's he's not he's not like making a time capsule like this movie. I think one of the first things we hear is Coldplay. Now I'm a huge Nickelback apologist, but you throw Nickelback in your movie and everyone's gonna be like, huh, Nickelback. I'll be happy, but a bunch of people yeah. might be bummed. The soundtrack's killer, by the way. The Shins, you got Iron and Wine, Imogen Heap, Coldplay, and Simon and Garfunkel. Here, just because I never did it, let me really quick do uh, what we're talking about and who's in it. So today we are talking about 2004's Garden State, written and directed by Zach Braff, starring Zach Braff, Natalie Portman, Peter Sarsgaard, Jim Parsons, Gene Smart, Method Man, and Michael Weston. It's weird because like, okay, coming from a movie making standpoint, just like as a little kid or someone who fantasizes about making movies, I would, to me, it's all about that soundtrack, right? Yeah. Like the fact that he uses the Simon and Garfunkel song, it's like, it. this movie does fail in certain areas in its writing, in my opinion, which we'll get to. But it doesn't matter because that soundtrack comes in so strong to assist that it, it doesn't matter. 
um, the weaknesses kind of are bolstered by what I think of as like a feeling or a vibe. This movie catches like like an emotional truth that some of the stilted elements is that that emotional truth is so strong that some of the stilted elements don't affect it that negatively. You're like, okay, well, that writing is a little bit, you know, okay, we're being a little poetic, like, is that really something we said? Or, like, especially, as we'll get into, because she's the the, the crux of all this, like, that ho- mm-hmm. the whole inclusion of this, like, Manic Pixie dream girl character, that grates. It's the, it's the same complaint I have about Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. It's a perfect movie until Kate Winslet walks on screen, and then you're like, shit, this again, okay. She'll be gone in a second, or whatever, you know, but. And I guess, and I've seen this like compared to The Graduate a lot. Have you seen that? I haven't. No, I know it's such I, a failing as like a film nerd. <laughs> I well, I've no, I'm like I've seen like that people compare this film to The Graduate all the time, and it's like, oh, you know, every generation has this kind of film, and I don't, I don't think that like Zach Braff was trying to make a coming of age generational film. Like maybe he was, but I think truly he was trying to make a film and this was his coming of age film. You know what I mean? Um, And then it was organic and natural. um, And it's, that's why it's just so hard to hate it, even as like cheesy and expositional as it is. I mean, cause there's times where like, they're just repeating lines and it's like, okay, we don't need this at this point. Like (laughs) we get get it. Okay. It's very heavy handed, but it's okay. Like, I think it's okay. Yeah. I, I think there is some elegance to it. Um, I, I love the opening of this film. Like we start with almost like a, we start essentially with like a fight club airplane scene, which ends up being a dream that establishes so strongly immediately like the mindset, like the mindset of this character. He's on a plane. Everyone's screaming. It's going to crash. People are wailing and weeping and shit's falling out of the bins. And he's sitting completely deadpan, dead eyed, couldn't care less that he's about to die. And all he does is he reaches up. And it's almost like that just all you want in hell is a cool drink of water, you know, and he turns the little air nozzle towards himself and opens it up and then a phone rings and he wakes up. And I wanted to point out that we when we wake up, he's in white, in a white room, in a white bed with white pillows and his head is directly between the two pillows so i always like say this term liminal state over and over again like a place between places or a place or essentially nowhere you're not anywhere you're in you're in like this transitional state he starts in this like transitional state then we get that great shot after he finds out that his mother is dead his dad calls leaves a message and he doesn't really react he like almost goes back to sleep just like nothing happens this is like a this is almost like the beginning of this movie is almost like watching a dead person Who's like moving around and doing stuff. Then we get the cool bisection of his face in the mirrors. I thought that was a that was pretty good storytelling at the beginning. I think it gets heavy handed the deeper in we go. But I thought that was a pretty good setup. Pretty strong. I thought it was good. The only... Well, I was disturbed upon reviewing this film. Because I was like, okay... Second film I recommend where I'm like, I totally, this film it gets me. The main character is disassociated and like suicidal. Okay. 
Cassandra. We got to get into some therapy, girl. Like, wait. What's going on? You know what, though? Like, I I recognize some of myself in there as well. Like, yeah. And then, but I think it does, you're right. It does do a good job of showing us, like, this guy is heavily medicated to the point where he does not feel anything around him. He's just living and the world is all happening around him and existing the only shot i don't like is when he's like walking through the bathroom and then all of the spigots go off because then it's like contradicting everything that the movie's trying to tell us it's like so now that reality knows he exists and is reacting to him i was wondering if those if those were like the swipe your hand and the faucet goes off thing, but I don't know what they would be reacting to. I thought that was kind of a weird shot as well. It's like a moment of um like magical realism or surrealism in the film, but this is actually a point in the film where he's still medicated. We find out when he goes home, he didn't bring it. He's in California at the beginning of this, and then he flies home to like go to his mother's funeral and doesn't bring his meds with him, and that's the other thing as he starts to like the numbness flows out and he starts to like wake up a little bit like you've been sleeping on your arm you know like he starts feeling those tingles right as he meets Natalie Portman but I I wondered if that was like an interior expression of what what he's experiencing so like he's totally deadpan and just like shuffling past these um, water faucets or past these sinks like as like a zombie but then that like sudden burst, that that rush of water, like you and I talked about in um, Half Nelson when he's in the bathroom smoking crack and the bathroom, like in the stall next to him, someone flushes that toilet and that toilet becomes like this sound of violence. Mm-hmm. I almost wondered if the sinks all popping off was like represented his internal landscape, you know, while we saw this weird tombstone exterior of him. I don't know. Um, I know that that shitty table in the Vietnamese restaurant is 100% exactly true. I have served that table of people so many times in my life. Like watching that, I felt seen. I was like, somebody knows my pain. (laughs) Yes. And I love that it's like literally based on an actual restaurant he worked at. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) That poor man. No wonder he's funny. You have to build like really strong... uh, defense mechanisms to survive in the service industry very long especially at a joint like that there was a lot of criticism surrounding this movie later of course not just about the manic pixie dream girl of it all but also like this mass exodus of people just basically not wanting to take their mental health medication sure um you know (laughs) it's the fight club effect right yeah. It, it, well, hold so, on. Explain. There's a couple of uh, ripples that came out from Fight Club, which we also talked about on your show. Right. Like unintended ripples, we'll say. Sure. Unintended. I don't think that it was the film's intention to say, stop taking your medications. Right. Um, but on message boards on the film's website when it launched, that's exactly what they were doing. And they were all talking about how they identified with the character. And like they stopped taking their meds and their life is so much better now and they can feel everything. And yeah, very interesting. Um, but I I like 
have read interviews where Zach Braff said like that definitely wasn't the intention of the film and sure. his parents are psychiatrists. So he grew up literally hearing people being psychoanalyzed his entire life. Um, so to him, I think this was just like second nature to write about. I don't think it was like intentional um, it, disinformation about medication or something like that. But it is interesting to think about the difference like when you're medicated from that young of an age especially like I have boys and they're automatically like ADHD because they don't sit still at school sure and some of these kids are medicated from the time they're like five years old but by the time you're 20 like you've been medicated your entire life so how I mean you don't even know what you're actually like off of medication right and I think that's super interesting. This is a huge. I mean, I didn't know about that. This controversy surrounding this movie, but this is a huge discussion that's going on in America right now. Is like, are we as a nation over prescribing medication? There's a lot of reporting on this, and there's a lot of studies on this that that maybe, especially antidepressants, and I mean, we have an ADHD medication shortage right now because so many people are prescribed ADHD medication. So the but the debate about that becomes whether or not, you know, like there are social factors or societal or technological factors that are causing like adult onset ADHD or I mean, if you look at social media, social media is like an designed to cultivate that in people. If you want me to play robot for eight hours a day, I have to take my robot pills. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Right. And also, if you are looking around at this fire, this active dumpster fire, which is our world, and you do not have anxiety or, or depression, like you might not have a pulse. I, that was something I wondered about with Zach Braff's character in here is it sounds like he's very heavily medicated and then he literally just cold turkeys on his you're way to right. his mom's funeral. So like he's on a whole. Wouldn't that be? But you're when he gets to the ecstasy, like theoretically, he shouldn't have tripped on the ecstasy. Well, I mean, he's off. He's off the drugs at that point, right? I, I don't, but I yeah. don't know how long he's been back in town. But what I'm more worried about is like his withdrawal symptoms from like. Dude, when he, I mean, maybe this is an exaggerated reality, but when he opens the like medicine cabinet and it's just like 55 pill bottles, yeah. you know, if you just cold turkey that much shit, you just die on the plane. You don't even, you, yeah. you know, your heart stops and you start sweating and your eyes fall out of your head. I don't know. I thought that was kind of wild. Um, I, At first, I didn't like that shot, but then I think like when you are just getting refills on stuff, I mean, yeah, that becomes your life. It's like you are what you eat kind of thing. This you know is, what I mean? This is actually like a slight complaint that I had. Not complaint, but like something that I wasn't sure about with this movie, especially in the early stages. I think it like finds its stride as it gets deeper in. Or maybe it's reflective of the fact that he's on so many drugs. But the line, there is like this weird surrealist or like what is real what is not you know we start on a plane then there's a phone on the roof of the plane and it's a dream and then he wakes up and he there's like 150 pill bottles in his you know it's just a wall of pill bottles and then there's sinks going off as he's walking by so okay so reality is wiggly here like there are hallucinatory or pseudo psychedelic elements 
going on in the film. And as soon as he gets back home, that all stops. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to say like Natalie Portman isn't real, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's true. It does. It's but... almost like the all the fantasy elements are transferred to this one person who becomes a stand-in for his imagination. Mm. Kind of. I mean, I had forgotten about the whole arc arc, which... Oh, yeah, down in the bottom <laughs> of the big giant pit. Yes, I forgot all about that. <laughs> I kind of liked it. But knowing like the, those shortcomings in this film, though, like when I think about that stuff, I'm just like, I think of how quickly they filmed this. Yeah. How long was and, it? Do you know? Uh, it was under 30 days. Holy shit. That is fast. Right. Let me see. I've got it here somewhere. It have Yeah. 25 days for two and a half million dollars. That's... That's a really modest budget for what they managed to pull off. Then they sold it for five million at, at like a pitch meeting at Sundance to some guy to Miramax or whoever, right? Yeah, it's Miramax. That I mean, I I know that this doesn't make sense, but like I'm mad for Zach Braff. Like that's insane. Do you know how much money this movie ended up making? Right. Probably close. 80 million i'm guessing probably neighborhood like 100 but he i mean he doubled his money is this his first film first film and he couldn't Writer, get anybody director, to start wow he could not get anybody to green light it he goes everywhere in town and thinking like he's on scrubs i have all these friends in the industry like it'll be fine nobody will touch it they're like this isn't even a three-act movie like what are you doing like <laughs> take less acid get out of my office so he finds this production company and okay. robert de niro ends up green lighting it like de niro no, com- i'm not making this up right this is a de niro joint Devito, but we'll come back to that. He he shows up to town, and one of his friends has sold um, silent Velcro to like a patent office and made a fortune. Right? So yes. Zach Braff asks him, he's like, "What are you What are you doing with yourself?" He says, "Nothing, man. Never been so bored in my life. I went out and bought a bunch of shit. Nothing." That's his long. And then the next sequence is just this long blurry haze of like booze and drugs one of the recurring motifs of this movie is that that is what they revert to it's like zach braff wants there to be some something to life more to life but when he gets with these people and there's like a quiet moment or like what are we gonna do tonight let's get fucked up is what that one guy Mm -hmm. says when he shows up at the bar zach braff and natalie portman are kind of like talking and being honest being open and vulnerable and then the rest of the crew shows up and they're like let's go get fucking drunk like the move the first thing we see him do when he gets to town is he goes to a party and he sits on a couch totally like while life happens around him and he just sits rooted to the spot staring at the wall like lost the next day he ends up going to the doctor and this is when he meets natalie portman so i think this is like one of the functions of the manic pixie dream girl in in this specific film but more generally as well this is a guy who doesn't understand what the purpose of his life is what he's meant to be doing but he has a sense that it should be more than this you know i mean i don't know what are your thoughts no i think you're right 
it's crazy because like even on the ecstasy with the party going on around him, I love a scene where like you're have you're watching somebody have a bad trip. Like he's not even having a bad trip. He's literally just gone. He's just not there. He's so disconnected from everything around him. Right. Even these like little moments of joy, he doesn't I don't know, you don't fully connect and it I don't know, he does such a good job of showing how like discontent he is not discontent but just like vacant. isolated yeah vacant is a good one too he's like an he's like empty yeah and the only responsibility like he's i mean he's got to go to this doctor's appointment he's like just wandering around lost basically then realizing oh god i've got to be at this appointment so he goes and i have this like I think it's such a real phenomenon that like you go to a doctor or like a school principal or just anybody who's like a safe person, quote unquote, and you can just like trauma dump on them, you know, because you're like, oh, God, thank God I've got the manager of the DMV. Let me tell them what's really going on, you know. And like he I think he has that moment when he goes into the doctor finally like we're a little skipping over Natalie Portman a little bit, but when he's around the the doctor, we find out all of the tea. Like I think it's I don't think he actually is having headaches. I think he used that as an excuse to get into that room and tell that guy, "Hey, I stopped taking all my psych meds because I have felt numb for my whole life, and I want to experience it. What do you think?" And the guy's yeah. like, "I." Let's get a brain scan because you said you were having headaches, but we should probably talk about what you just told me. Yeah. You know, and and it's crazy because like right before he goes in there, Natalie Portman's putting the headphones on him to listen to music. And it's like, yeah, you wonder in this character state of mind, is he like, oh, my God, what am I feeling right now? Why am I feeling right now? Right. Is this feeling yeah. You know, I mean, I, yeah, it's it's weird. I think he actually does a pretty good job in these early sequences of like of portraying somebody who's now pro- maybe maybe like starting to experience emotions or who never who has no context for them because he's been medicated since he was I think 9 years old or 12 years old when he like shoves his mom. So He's in his late 20s, I think, at this point. So that's more than half of his life he's been in this, like, state of stupor. So now he's, like, meeting somebody. And the other thing is he's meeting somebody whose default is not just, like, hey, man, I had a bad day. Hey, shut up, homo. Don't talk to me, dog. Like, let's why don't we go drink some beers, man? You know, like, someone who's actually, like, in the room with him who is also feeling and experiencing things. But this is that thing where it's actually hard to talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girls because you just you want to skip around them because they're like weird or irritating or problematic. But like, let's force ourselves to do it. So when we first meet Natalie Portman, she's watching him get his leg humped by a dog, which is one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. Yes. Uh, But but my note on this, their initial interaction, as I said, So what is it that creates the initial spark that's going to carry her through this film? She's super socially awkward, very talkative, totally devoid of sexuality, and openly rude to him. So 
I I think it I think that the the like lack of um like the lack of like romantic or sexual appeal is intentional because it's in strong contrast to the party scene that when they play spin the bottle we get that girl I think she's really intentionally cast she kind of has this like sort of trashy party girl sexiness to her then there's the kiss which we see him like barely engage in which is a cool way to express that he's really not present in his body or in the moment at all but then when you see natalie portman in a bit who's one of like the you know most gorgeous people on the planet there is zero like sex appeal or lasciviousness there's no sense or hint that this will be a romantic relationship and you know so i don't know i i wonder about that because later on, he when they go to like that sleazy sex hotel, you know, or whatever, trying to pick up a canister of nitrous, um, yeah, he gets mad because he feels that th- these activities are going to sully her in a way. Because she goes, "I'm not innocent," and he goes, "Yes, you are. It's one of the things I like about you." And I think we see that from Go. Yeah, this and I that was one of my notes was like in this first scene that she's in, it's over the top with the childlike stuff very much so so bizarre do you find that this is something we're gonna see again it for sure in eternal sunshine the sort of childlike quality do you find that troubling at all in this character trope that one of the one of the aspects of it that seem to appeal to our male protagonists is this sort of like arrested development phase yeah what what is it about that i wonder if it's just like infantilizing them or like a lot of women have said okay they're basically neurodivergent girls that we didn't realize were autistic you know i'm like uh kind of i i don't know if that's really true like the way how childlike she is in this film is bizarre and compared especially to like elizabeth town we don't see we're not going to see the same thing sure and i also think the problem is too that if anybody gave her that note and then like zach braff i don't think was gonna stand there and be like no do it like this do it this way like i don't think he felt like it was his place probably because you're working with like these major actors and it's your first film I'm guessing that that was like a lot of Natalie Portman's decision as an actress. That's good. I don't know. Honestly. I mean, you never want to give line readings. You kind of want people to like come to stuff organically because then it'll always come across more honest in a lot of ways. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that. I like that you said that, you know, neuro, like that neurodivergent thing, because there is a really strong sense. Bird watched this movie with me. She decided to not be on the episode because she's like, I Bird hated this <laughs> this movie, and she's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to just like be a bummer the whole time. Um, she'll be back. She will be on for Eternal Sunshine, though. I'm gonna force her to because I love that movie so much. <laughs> but um, she, yeah, we were sitting there, and Bird was like, I feel bad saying this, but is she supposed to be like really mentally ill? Right. She kind of does act that way. I read a really interesting commentary because you had sent me a link when we were first talked about doing this like recently that maybe Audrey Hepburn's character in Breakfast at Tiffany's was an example of a manic pixie dream girl. And I read this really interesting 
um, critique by it was like this. I wish I could remember her name. It was like a feminist film critic who had written that if you just go back in time a little ways and start watching movies that like predate like 1965, you start seeing a huge number of female characters who have a lot of the the traits and tropes of a manic pixie dream girl. And if you go back into like the 40s and 30s, a lot of the major emotional beats, like, for example, a woman who has no extrinsic goals of or like no intrinsic goals of her own, no real inner life and sort of exists to just support a male character and his goals and his dreams and to inspire and guide and like comfort him without any like real inner life of her own. That's this woman pointed out that that is kind of just what women's role was in society back then. So like Mary Sue, like I feel like I've heard you guys talk about the Mary Sue character. Well, before the Mary Sue trope is a character that can do anything like a guy who like, well, I I can do this surgery. Don't worry. I've got some background in surgery, but who will fly the plane? Well, I'm also a pilot. I can fly this plane. Oh no, here's some bad guys. Don't worry. I know jujitsu. Like someone who can do everything is a Mary Sue. Okay. 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 Like a Jack of all trades. Yes. Um, Okay. Like John Wick kind of, but he's, he's got the, you know, training to back it up, but, but yeah, like this person. Well, and I know that Natalie's not a bad right, bad actress. She had been in anywhere but here years before this. Neither is Kate Winslet, though. Like, dude, Natalie Portman is. Yeah. In, you know what I mean? It's it's something about you know what it is is it's it's something it's just something about this character type. This character type is like almost impossible to pull off. I can't think of a single performance of this character trope that I've seen where I was like, that was great. Mm. It it is one of the, like the huge blemishes of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It works in Scott Pilgrim versus the World because Ramona is like a deconstruction of this, right? And it makes it intentionally look like silly. The when people try to put her in that box or objectify her that way, she pushes back against it, and be, it so becomes like a deep examination of this trope. But when you just try to play this on the surface. It rings hollow and flat because that's the nature of this trope. You know, like part of being a manic pixie dream girl is so like what does Natalie Portman want in this movie? Can you think of anything? Just Zach Braff. That's it. Zach Braff. Exactly. Right. Like, what are her life goals? They, yeah. To skip to the end. I'm, we'll we'll bounce back because I have more like more we'll go through the whole movie but like this to me is one of the strongest moments that exemplifies this aspect of this character type at the end of the movie after everything has happened and Zach Braff has he's alive and he feels and he's off his medicine and the world is beautiful and it's all because of this girl I'll call her a girl too because like man that is how she's played Mm-hmm. This girl has awakened me and my life is all of this. And at the end of the movie, they're sitting in an airport and he goes, listen, I have to, I'm going to go. I have to go back to Los Angeles and and be an actor and live my life because I because that's how important you and I are to me, baby. I got to mm-hmm. go and do my thing because you matter so much to me. And she's fucking devastated. 
because she's mm-hmm. going to be left in the mm-hmm. lurch, living in her weird gerbil paradise with her mom and strange, maybe slightly problematic, like adopted brother. And Zach Braff's going to go off and like live his life and do his thing and be a successful actor. And I promise I'll come back for you one day, babe. Mm-hmm. And when she's like sobbing and should be so pissed off, he's like, look at me. Look at me, babe. Turns her face to his, kisses her on the mouth, gets on the airplane, right? So he has completely removed all of her agency entirely. It's just him making a decision, even though his ability to do so came from her. Then he gets back off the airplane and goes back into the airport and grabs her out of a a phone booth and goes, Wait, I changed my mind. Here's what we're doing instead. Now I'm here with you, babe, and we're going to start this whole relationship thing. And once again, she has zero to do with it. She's got nothing to do with it at all. It's 100% him just deciding what the two of them are going to do. What her He decides that her fate is going to be abandonment and then that they're going to be together forever within the space of like 10 minutes without her mm. having a single say in it. And like that is part of the... Mm. really hard to sit with part of this character trope. You know what I mean? Anyway, I mean... It is. It's so traumatizing. It's pretty fucked up. It is. Oh, God. It's so gut-wrenching when you say it like that because it's so true. Like, that is such a borderline sick... It's sick. It Like, his the way he treats her at the end of this movie is, like, intensely abusive. It's really... But it doesn't. I mean, I can relate. I can relate. I can totally relate. Like, I unfortunately, like, I know that feeling of like, oh my god, what do you mean we're not going to be together? My entire life revolved around us being together. Right. Like, that's the only thing I, I don't care about anything except love. You know. Um. As the man- manic pixie dream girl, <laughs> what else is there besides you and me? Right. Babe. Yeah. If yes. once you fly off on the plane, I poof out of existence. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying, but true. <laughs> it's yeah. So I, I didn't mean to like take us literally to the credit sequence so we can go backwards. But um, yeah, like there's there. Early- well, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I can understand where, like, with Bird, I mean, people that don't like this movie, they're, they'll they say, like, this is a horrible depiction of women, but also, and it's a projection, right, of Zach, this is how Zach Braff sees women, or he's writing Annie Hall, whatever. Sure. Also, women are like this, too. Like, you know, we... You, do- yeah, you see it in the real world. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, this men have literally told me you're my manic pixie dream girl to the point where I had to go look it up, you know. And I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Like, why do they keep saying this to me? Like, oh, because I told them all I care about is them, and I have no aspirations of like or goals outside of loving them, and that's psychotic and wrong, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Like they like it, but I don't. Not on paper. Uh, yeah when i think sometimes it is like just that perspective too like when you because when you when i first watched garden state and like was taking notes on this stuff there the movie doesn't portray these events and this these behaviors as though they're problematic or troubling they give you like 
okay, well, I'm getting on the plane. You want to listen to the shins one more time? And like, here comes Simon and Garfunkel and powder like filter. Twilight. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's totally, uh, it's, it's totally shot as though we're watching like the climax to like, oh my God, it's almost the like, um, Casablanca moment. Except he gets off the plane and comes back in. You know, they're playing it as like the end of one of the all-time great love stories. And really what it is is just like, I have taken all of the utility from you that I possibly can. And now I'm going to go and, you know, utilize what you've given me. And good luck, kid. Here's looking right. at here's looking at you, you know. Um, just for the – for I did you – have you seen – I just did an episode with my friend um, Alex, which I haven't posted yet. But by the time this drops, that episode either should be up or will come immediately afterwards. Have you ever seen a movie called Burning? Mm-mm. All right. So there's this movie called Burning 2018. It's based on a Haruki Murakami story. Really good. Super weird, like, twisty mystery about – kind of about – um something like this like a listless dude meets this really quirky weird exciting girl and then she starts dating another guy and he becomes our our protagonist this listless dude gets kind of like fascinated with the two of them then she disappears and all that's left is the boyfriend and then our listless like protagonist starts wondering what happened to her and starts looking more closely at this boyfriend. And there's like this big mystery. I don't want to get too far into it because it's really fucking good. Um, Ooh, that sounds really good. It's awesome. Yeah. It's excellent. Um, so sh- her name is Shin Mei, and I wrote down. This is more for like listeners of my show, but you should definitely check this flick out. Um, Shin Mei is like a neo manic pixie dream girl character, even though this movie. This is not like Garden State, Elizabethtown. It's 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 far exceeds these films as as far as like cinematic achievement. It's truly like a ma- like one of the masterworks of foreign cinema that I've seen recently. But she still falls into these same tropes and traps of this this type. Um, when he meets her, she like will fall asleep in random locations, like this little quirky character thing, right? So she'll be like at a bar and she falls asleep or they'll be at a restaurant and she'll fall asleep. And they're like, isn't that cute? She fell asleep. Oh, she goes to Africa. like to try and experience what life is about. Cause she feels like she's too sheltered, but all she brings back is this weird dance called the great hunger dance that she does, which the new boyfriend like makes her do in public sometimes as a way of like embarrassing her. He's not a very nice dude, but, um, she, She's she basically spends the movie like wondering aloud if there's more to life than job, money, possessions, party, repeat. And I wrote down she's someone who seeks or scrabbles for meaning or to interface in the world beyond the brutality of capitalist drudgery and becomes an inspiration or a muse for our boring, typical, Mm. like non-driven male character so even though she's portrayed as like a character with depth and yearning and longing her function is the same she just exists to make this man do something so that he has something to do and, and then the she muse dis- yeah too that's the other part of it yeah i got a lot you're my muse you inspire me to do this you inspired me to write this i'm like that's weird like- <laughs> yeah like i think this is the muse is a good 
a good like entry point into some of the ideas of a manic pixie dream girl because you can think of it literally as a woman on a pedestal, a goddess, right? So one of the things that one of the, one of the purposes of a muse was to be a divine inspiration, but a muse was never something that you could actually interact with. It was a goddess who came down and like breathed the the light of inspiration into you, but it's not it's not a person whose hand you can hold or, you know, whose eyes you can gaze into or walk along a beach with or go grocery shopping with or take care of a dog with or cook a meal with. It's this thing on a pedestal that you beseech when you need it. Like, I, oh, I'm so blocked. Where's my muse? Oh, there she is up on the pedestal and I'll give her a nice gift and she'll come and inspire me. And then... Okay, why are you hanging around? I've got shit to do, but thanks for the idea. That was really cool, you know? I and I I do think that there's there's another a- aspect of this that goes back to like um I took a lot of medieval literature classes in college, and there's this thing what we think of as romantic love, you know, where you're like, "Oh, I love this person." Way back in the day, romantic love meant something different. It was like a knight who would like take like a piece of cloth from this damsel, this woman that he loved, and he would wrap the, you know, wrap it around his arm. But she was never anyone that he was going to like hold in his arms or kiss. She was like this ideal of beauty and purity and chasteness and good that he was going to go out in the world and do stuff to honor that or to impress that, you know? But she was, it was not like what we would consider a relationship in modern times. She was just like a pure white dove in high window who would cast a favorable glance upon this man and he would go out and kill shit and do war and make his fortune and write cool guitar riffs on his harp or whatever the fuck to like honor that idea. She was truly an idea rather than a person. I think Manic Pixie Dream Girls are the same thing. I think Natalie Portman in this film is that. You're because she, she, she's innocent, man. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Dude, yeah, well, like, they're bro. the muses that were drug kicking and screaming um, from that realm into Tulpaville is what happened. Tul- Dude, Tulpaville. That's so fucking perfect. <laughs> The idea that you the idea that you feed with attention that's such a good that's such a good analogy for this manic pixie dream girls are the, are the tulpas of the film world, right? Oh my god! <laughs> oh, Jesus, like this man. I hate to make it about me, but I'm just no, saying, do please. This guy literally said to me, and by this guy I mean NT lawyer yeah. from Crazy Days and Nights blog and podcast and whatever. He would say to me like, oh, you know, I do. I like the idea of putting you up on a shelf and then, you know, taking you off the shelf. And I'm just like, what? Like, that's such a red flag. Biz- yeah. But unless. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And when you're not like thinking in that state of mind, like I didn't even really understand what he was saying, but I, I did find this old, um, this review from Ebert and he understands the manic pixie dream girl um, in 2004, like long before 
the coin, like the term was coined. Okay. Sure. And he says she is infantilized, behaves and speaks like a child, casually presumptuous. Um, oh, no, no, that was my note. Sorry. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I mean, you're not Hold wrong. On. You're totally not wrong. It's oh, part of yeah. That childishness Ebert, too, though. So, Ebert's go review. I got to pull it up. Hold on. Well, yeah, it, what, if I had to be critical of this movie, I would say it's like going to a child's birthday party. It's like the rich kid you have to be nice to. It's kind of the vibe it gives. It's like, oh, we all have to be nice to Zach Braff. He made a movie. But like when I really study it, I cannot believe he pulled this off on such a small budget in such a short amount of time on, I mean... I don't know. I th- I find it very impressive. I, I do too. And I think this is something that's interesting about the conversation we've had to this point. Every time we're talking about anything that's not Natalie Portman, it's pretty much praise. You know what I mean? Like there's really good there is good writing in here. There's great cinematography in here. I like how it's structured. It really reinforces the journey the characters on, meandering, wandering, kind of listless and lost. But once you add that, it's 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 kind of sick almost that the manic pixie dream girl herself is the toxic element of a, of a film that sort of poisons the rest of the well. But that's but you can't help have it be that way because it's such a troubling and problematic thing, and the portrayal of it is so disturbing it's strange to me that people like that we keep seeing this in movies when this pops up in movies, I'm like. Who thought, like, who was sitting down to write this or who was, like, casting this or whatever and was like, yeah, you know what's going to be awesome in this? You know what's going to be really great? A woman that acts like a child and doesn't want anything except to make this guy's life better. And there are TikToks of young women who are like, yeah, I remember when all I wanted to do was be a manic pixie dream girl. I'm like, what? Uh, Huh? What? This was a thing that people were aspiring to be. Right. I don't even understand. I didn't. I Somebody missed this. Is, you're lucky. Well, you, um, but you did, and yet you somehow ended up being some weird version of that for some really shitty dude, though. I, I got cast in the role. I showed up. Um, <laughs> yeah, he Ebert. He um, compares it to Garden State, and or it to is um, Elizabeth. Town. Yeah. He compares it to The Graduate. Oh, okay. Um, he, you know, he doesn't love the movie. You can tell from his review, but he says this is not a perfect movie. It meanders and ambles and makes puzzling detours, but it's smart and unconventional with a good eye for the perfect detail. As when Andrew arrives at work in Los Angeles and notices that the gas spigot from the gas pump rigged, uh, ripped from its hose when he drove away from the gas station is still stuck in the gas tank. Something like that tells you a lot about a person's state of mind. Ebert didn't hate it, but he also didn't love it. He only gave it three stars. Out of Um, four though, right? Yeah. I would give this, what would you rate this on? Like, I I mean, I, I don't know about stars. What about like a percentage out of a hundred? But that's so school. I hate rating shit because, like, how do you quantify this, art? I don't this know, is the part about Natalie Portman. He okay. says, Andrew's new life begins when he recognizes the grave diggers at his mom, his mother's funeral. 
These are high school buddies he left behind. Soon, he's high on ecstasy and playing spin the bottle at a party, and not long after that, he's unexpectedly in love. She is Sam, Natalie Portman, a local girl who is one of the creatures you sometimes find in the movies, a girl who is completely available, absolutely desirable, and really likes you. Portman's success in creating this character is all the more impressive because we learn almost nothing about her, except that she's great to look at and those are and has those positive attributes. That's there's a reason he's one of the famous film critics, man. He nails it. That's exactly her. Wow. Um, but he the way that he says, like he's such a keeper of the scrolls right because totally he says this is the character we see in film you know this isn't something new like he just didn't have the words for it yet sure but he was describing the manic pixie dream girl trope he's like you know this is the the archetype we've seen it before nothing to see here really yeah yeah utterly available great to look at really likes you yeah, the availability thing too, like because you know what, when you have no goals of your own, you never have anything going on. So if they need to talk at two in the morning or four in the afternoon or whatever, or spend an entire day dragging you all over town with your weird grave robbing, grave digging, drug addled friend, that's fine. Because no, I didn't mm-hmm. have any plans. Maybe bury a hamster, but like other than that, I'm good. Yes. Yeah. And to that point, um, the person I was dating would come up with these fantasies of like, oh, yeah, you know, we should go make a documentary about this person and da 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 da. And in my head, I would think to myself, like, how is that going to work? Because I have kids and a job and I have to, you know, be a parent. And one of my friends actually had to point out to me like, no, honey, in his mind, you don't have kids and a job like none of that's real to him right it, you're you're just a fantasy i'm like oh i see right okay. hence the shelf like putting putting you on and taking you off of a shelf you know that you, you become a singular uh, you be, i mean that's horrible but you become an object and an object is a single unattached thing yeah so i one of the notes that i have on this and i was kind of curious um what you think about this is we there are some male analogs to the manic pixie dream girl. Um, I looked at I, I kind of found some about some stuff about this online. I hadn't seen the movies that those are in, but I have two examples of my own. I kind of think that Tyler Durden is an example of like a I, I don't want to call it a manic pixie dream boy, but like the the male equivalent of this, i.e. Interesting. He's like an interesting, weird, quirky guy who doesn't play by society's rules, doesn't really give a fuck. But and I think this kind of speaks to like and I'll get more into this in a second. But I, th- I think this speaks to like the, the masculine aspect of the, the reversal is he's highly motivated in a specific direction. So when we meet, um, what is it? Uh, he doesn't have a name. Edward Norton's character. Um, when we meet Edward Norton, he's like this gray person in a job that he hates who imagines like fantasizes about dying and filled his life with like inane shit. And this character comes in and rattles him off the tracks with all of his wacky, crazy antics and gives him a new purpose in life. And now he feels alive. Fight Club is the darkest possible iteration of that because they all become terrorists. But there's another movie 
with Natalie Portman in it, ironically. Have you ever seen Hesher? No. Oh, Cassandra, you've got to watch this movie. You would, I don't know, maybe you'll hate it, maybe you'll love it, but you must watch it. It's called Hesher. It's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Natalie Portman, Rain Wilson. I can't remember the little kid's name, but it's basically like, in a way, it's kind of a reverse garden state. So in Hesher, um, mom dies, uh, Rain Wilson's the husband, there's a little kid, and the mom dies in a car crash, and the kid feels aimless and lost because he's lost his mother. So he throws a rock through a window one day of like this how these houses that are being constructed, and he's he breaks a window, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt comes out with hair longer than mine, and a big tattoo of a stick figure shooting himself in the head on his chest, and he's got like you know like flannel shirt and ripped ass pants, and he's just a metalhead that was like squatting in this house, and because this kid broke the window in his house and the cops showed up and rousted him he moves in with rain wilson and this little kid and dad is too shell-shocked by grief to notice that like a weird 20-something hesher has moved in and hesher they just call him hesher um like hesher helps like this kid find his way again and through life and natalie portman is just like a grocery store clerk working at her local grocery store that who this kid really likes and Hesher kind of helps this kid figure out like his feelings towards Natalie Portman and then also like detonates that relationship in the little kid's face for basically no reason because he's an asshole but he becomes this like quirky mercurial Peter Pan character that helps get a listless directionless grief stricken person kind of back on track and pointed in the right direction you know anyway I I thought it was interesting that there were male analogs to this but i was wondering if typically you see the manic pixie dream girl character as a woman is partly because of partly because of one of their functions is to help the male character get in touch with what used to be called or might more traditionally be called their feminine side what do you think right what do you think about that Right, because there was such this very small time in the late 90s, early 2000s, where it was like cool to be metrosexual and guys like leaned into their femininity for like one second. And then I feel like it it reversed or something. I don't know what happened with the the Joe Rogan had a major influence. I I don't know. Like, but yeah, like the term almost worse now than the second the term alpha hit the hit the hit the zeitgeist. We were all fucked. You're right, Mm -hmm. though. Like, I I remember that early that early 2000s thing where it was like and honestly, it shouldn't it always be so that we should be more like empathetic and multidimensional human beings who are kind of more in touch with all aspects of our personality like what what a world would it be if if more men had access to you know air quotes their feminine side or were able to relate more to the emotional and what a crazy thing to say yeah your your feminine side well what do you mean you know your emotions right oh my god dude like if the masculine side is is half of a human being that is completely devoid from it the 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 i'm using air quotes again softer emotions like that's probably not good we should all probably be working on that a whole bunch uh there's there's a moment up ahead when remember when they go to the um like the rich friend's house and they're all sitting around the fireplace 
after the like the pool sequence. Oh my god, I, Rosette. I love that scene when they're burning the old sofa. Yeah. The couch. Um, it's fucking awesome. This just felt really real. Like I, I have read so many reviews of this movie where they're like, this is so unrealistic. I, nobody's getting asked to a party at their mom's funeral. Guys, I feel like this is very realistic to my hometown. Like, as somebody who went and did a walkabout and came home, like, I did have people come up to me and be like, you didn't kill yourself? Wow. <laughs> we all totally thought you killed yourself or something. That we haven't seen you too. in, like, 10 years. <laughs> Holy shit, you know? <laughs> And just like running into people at the grocery store and then being like, do you want to go to a hurricane party down at Tyler's mom's house tonight? Like, okay. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen you guys in 10 years, but whatever. Sure. It wasn't. I got, I literally got invited to a party at my friend's brother's funeral. See? We were, we were like out in the parking lot and this was, I was still like straight edge back then, but like a bunch of people from my town were, like we were waiting for the priest to show up. He was super late. So a bunch of my friends were like, we were sitting in the church and they came by and they like hit me on the shoulder and like, bro, we're going to go have a smoke outside. You want to come with? And I'm like, aren't we like, isn't this, there's a casket up there, dude. And he's like, yeah, but like the priest is like 30 minutes out. Let's go grab a." And they like, we went out into the parking lot of this fucking church and a bunch of them are like smoking weed and smoking cigarettes and passing around like pints of brandy. And they were like, there's a party on, on Drummond tonight, dude. You want to go? And I'm like, not really, man. I'm like really sad. This is kind of a bummer. I mean, I wasn't, you know, heavily medicated and such like, but how fucking wacky is. That? Yeah. But this is stuff that happens. It's really it real. Is, right. It is. Well, and also the other thing, sadly, that I found relatable was like, have you ever gotten a phone call that someone died and you just don't? It just doesn't register. You're just kind of like, okay, like, you know, you're so you have to fake some type of something. Yeah. So they, the other people don't think you're weird, but you're just like, okay, so I, now I have to go home for three days. Like, what, what does this mean practically for me? You know, I haven't had that exact reaction, but when my, I got a phone call when like one of my family members were kind of recently died of of like a like a traumatic accident like fell and was badly hurt and then passed away about like a week later week and a half later and uh that's terrible it was truly horrible but when i got that phone call and it was a fan and it was like someone i was really close with as well it wasn't like you know like hey your great uncle you know died in poughkeepsie because then i would probably be like okay are we going to that or like mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know him that well but I remember I remember getting that phone call and I had no idea what to say or do they were like hello and I'm like I just dial toned yeah you're like I don't have any basis for this yet I had nothing yeah I'd like <laughs> yeah. the ground was gone so like if it had gone to voicemail and I had like a voicemail machine it would have been the opening of this movie it would have totally been me just like laying in bed like what the fuck did you just say you know like right I, I'm just going to keep laying here and let this message play out. And maybe it didn't happen, you know, but there's a lot. There's a lot of moments in this movie that feel very real. Even dude, even that bit, we'd kind of jumped over the swimming pool scene where Zach Braff mm. does his hilarious, horrible doggy paddle, which is so funny. But when he, he's talking with Natalie Portman over on like the shallow side of the pool and he says, 
he's like, you know, you never can. He literally says the Tom Wolf line. He's like, you never can go home again. You know, it doesn't exist. Um, it's just this place that's in your memories, but you can never get back there. And then he had one of the most beautiful lines I've ever heard. He goes, maybe that's what a family is. A bunch of people who are all missing something that isn't there or like who, who are all missing the same thing that doesn't exist or something like yes. that. It's fucking beautiful line. Yes. But, right. but he's saying that. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, like absolutely it is, but he's not he's saying, saying it, not showing us. And he's also, well, he's saying it to to Sam, you know, not to his friends. And the next, that's what the point that I wanted to get to is when they're sitting around that fireplace, which I agree with you, by the way, this is one of the best scenes in the movie when they're all sitting around the fireplace, they're drinking beers, got a pretty good buzz. Oh yeah. You want another beer? And, um, he t- starts talking about like, well, you know, why did your family send you away? And he goes, they didn't send me away. They sent me to, you know, like a boarding school. And they're like, well, why did they? Sam is asking him. His friends have never asked him this. It's crazy to me that his friends don't know this information about him. It's about to be revealed here. And she goes, well, why did, why did your family send you to a boarding school? His friends even give her shit about it. They're like, oh, you're a detective asking all these questions. She's trying to learn who he is, right? So this is one of the few instances where I think the character or this character type works because it actually you see a person trying to make a human connection with another person and it works because it's utilized in contrast to his friends who've never learned even this basic information about him. So mm-hmm. he reveals my parent, you know, like I went to boarding school because my parents thought that I might be dangerous. And she's like, why did they think you were dangerous? So once again, friends, happy to let this drop, happy to just keep drinking beers by the burning couch, but she wants to know who he is. So he it, he confesses here that he was the one who put his mom in a wheelchair and made her a paraplegic by sh- shoving her at, when she, he was like nine. But And he confesses about his meds. He starts talking about his traumas. He like, this is a human having a human moment, like opening up to that. And upon the revelation of all of this, like, deep material from his life, like, these aspects of his personality, his rich friend immediately just makes a joke. He says, I can't believe the, you know, the the quarterback is a pill popper. (laughs) This is part of the function of this character. It's, It's like, she's like his confessor priest muse on a pedestal, you know? But in this instance i think the character type or this character is very effective this is a good use of this thing uh, sorry go ahead what do you what do you think yeah i agree no i i definitely agree with that um i mean oh i had a lot going through my head um <laughs> i know it's a it's, there's a lot in this scene he like to unpack it's nuts yeah, it is it is funny how his friends are willing to give him that caveat of like we know you don't like to talk about this stuff so we just aren't going to. And then they have that like moment together which is like the another movie I sent you the um Crystal Fairy and the Magical Cactus like they have their little morning after peyote moment, you know. And he's like, yeah, this is what happened. Um, but also a huge missed opportunity by Zach Braff to make this a horror film at the end. He could just like 
kill Natalie Portman. And then it's like, oh, my God, he was off his meds. He was crazy the whole time. Oh, he fully <laughs> cracks up and he's like some weird sociopath. You could do we that just, that thing where you recut the trailer, but with scary music behind it. Because <laughs> like he's only home for three days. So oh, these, my God, I forgot that that's how short this is. Right. So they fall in love in only three days. He meets and, her on the second day. So they fall uh, in love in two days. Wait. So, I mean, the meds <laughs> literally have just worn off. We don't know. Maybe he needed those meds. I don't know what kind of child shoves their mother. Like, I, that's not something my kids do. But, yeah. I'm glad. I, I'm do, ha- I'm I like it. You. I do, right? I do like that line at the end. Like, I mean, I know she's fully out at this point. Like, how fucked is that, too? Like, the big climax, like, the whole catalyst for his realizations, just not. You know what? And it gives me Cameron from Ferris Bueller. It does. I feel like it's doing that better. The kids aren't all all right. Yeah. It, It feels more earned in this movie. It's more believable. Like, you know, I understand can't we believe Cameron's sick all the time. We see the pill bottles. We see him in the bed. OK, but like w- even without all that stuff with Zach Braff, the small interactions between him and his dad, um, the shirt in the bathroom, which is like a laughable scene. But like just everything with the funeral. His, oh, the shirt where house. it's made from like the wallpaper material and he blends in that. Yeah, it's so fucking funny. You're right. it's so funny. And it but it shows you how tight the walls are in that house. Like literally, I mean, metaphorically, yeah. not literally, you know, um, and I just I don't know. I love everything between him and the dad. I do, but here's where I hate this movie is that it's not even the ending for me because I am that girl, so that's fine. <laughs> but what I hate about the movie yeah. is that there they at one point he's supposed to meet up with his dad to talk. He blows off his dad, he goes on this adventure, then he comes home with a girl and he's hanging out in his the bathtub where his mom died. Which is fine. It's fine. But why are we meant to believe the dad's not going to walk in on them? Maybe he's taken his sleeping pill or his. I need one line. I need one excuse of, you know what I'm saying? Because the whole time I'm waiting for the dad to walk in and be like, why are you in your mother's bathroom? You sick fuck. This is why we sent you away. (laughs) 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 You know? Oh my god, he's dangerous. Get the gun. And it's oddly (laughs) sexual too. It's like, uh, are they gonna have sex right now? Where his mom died? In the tub, the I understand like what they were going for, you know, where it's like she's helping him finally process the death of his mother, which he hasn't been able to do this whole time. And then like he rolls a tear and she's she totally cheapens the moment by being like, oh, shit, let me get this shitty paper cup and I'll collect your tear. It's like, no, man, just let him have this moment. But once again, she's a child. Yes. Like she's fully. She's like, oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> the, that scene was kind of a, the pet funeral. 
And when he tells her that his mom just died and she just starts bawling and she's like, why am I crying? Right. She has like a full, like a huge breakdown. He asks her, he's like, why are you crying? And she goes, that's so sad. It's a real tragedy. She reacts to the real. She becomes like. Like a proxy for for him. She just becomes an extension of him is what she does until until eventually enough of like her life force leeches into him that he can like she like recharges his battery and then he's like thanks battery charger you want to come hang out in my mom's death tub with me then when they like hug each other and he's like i feel so safe i'm like your mom died right here four days ago right i don't know man i don't know that that scene shouldn't be about sam you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like it shouldn't be about like the quirky girl who's Hanging out. What did you think of the scene immediately preceding this one where uh, they're literally screaming into the abyss? Okay. I had forgotten about all of this. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) I hate all of this so much. Okay. I hate when they go and they're like looking for, we don't know yet what they're looking for, but they're looking for a necklace, which is really great. They go get money to buy nitrous oxide, to trade nitrous oxide for rare jewelry. It's a method man. Yeah. Which, w- have you ever been into like a hallway where you can see into people's hotel rooms to buy drugs? Never once in my life. Every time I've ever bought drugs, it was either like in a literal store now because we live in a weird golden age in Michigan. Or it was like you go over to someone's house and they're watching either cartoons or cops and the whole house is smelled, filled with marijuana smoke. Those right. are the only places I've ever purchased drugs. I've purchased drugs a myriad of places across this country. Never once in a, at fuck a place hotel? like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which here, dear listener, if you ever find yourself stuck in the middle of nowhere and you need to find some marijuana, you know, I'm just saying or anything, all you must do is go to a Walmart or really like any giant public place and go, woot, woot, that is the call of the juggalo, is what I've learned. (laughs) And immediately somebody will show up and try to sell you what they call swag. You're not going to want to do this very often. It's not good for your health, but in a bind, (laughs) this is something you can do. I'll let you guys know. No, that's a very that's helpful advice. If you're ever if you're ever jonesing, woot woot in a big Walmart or public. If you're s- stuck in a red state, like in the middle of nowhere, you know, <laughs> you you never know when you're gonna be in like Oklahoma and you have you don't have a plug. So, <laughs> but never ever have I been into a hallway where you can like see through into people's hotel rooms. I was Dude. I was so taken out of the movie. And then there's like and just, there's like six guys back that like it's a whole that weird like circle jerk thing, you know, where it's what's that heroin movie um, where it's all of a sudden it's like Requiem for a Dream. Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, my God. Method Man's like ass to ass. And you're like, what are right? I watching? That actually was. I felt like totally unnecessary. You know what I mean? Like it was weird. It was like I now I know Zach Braff has never done drugs. Okay, it gets yeah. Um, he's like, where would people go to buy drugs? Probably in a seedy heroin sex motel, the worst place in the world. You're like, not yeah, at home, my man. Exactly, exactly. And then the arc, right? So 
Oh, wait, here. I have some drug tips for our listeners, too, right here. In this movie, um, Zach Braff's shitty grave-robbing friend tells Method Man to just go ahead and take hits of nitrous right off the tank. Don't ever do that. The reason you put it into a balloon is it comes... It's uh, it's like sub-zero temperatures inside that tank to compress it. If you take a hit off the spigot, it will freeze the tissue in your lungs and you will die. So that's terrible advice by his friend. That's the right. point of the balloons. Never take a hit <laughs> off a nitrous tank. Always use a balloon. Okay, sorry. What were you going to say? And if you need a few dollars, you take that can and those balloons right down to the fish concert and sit in that parking lot. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. But so then they go to the infinite abyss, which I had totally forgot about this part of the movie. But it's like this place in New Jersey where they've dug out and they're going to build a mall or something and they found some uh, remarkable natural basically abyss, you know, a giant crater. Right. And it's beautiful. And there's a man who lives there and he's protecting it, watching the property until the law sorts out what's going to happen. Will it be bought out by like a mega place? Yeah, they're trying to build a shopping center there. Right. Which um, reminds me of the Coalition for the Open Spaces from My Heart Huckabees. And this was because that was like a hot topic at the time was like suburban sprawl. Right. Right. And. So artificial suburban sprawl. So um, then we meet this character. He lives in a boat, like an old decommissioned boat that doesn't work anymore on the side of this mountain, which seems very, very, very dangerous. Like, it seems like he's just going to fall in at any second. I know he's like on the precipice of like the giant like leads down to hell. Yeah, it's horrifying. Very sketchy. They go visit him. They get soaking wet. um, And they have this like small interaction. They have tea and they leave. And then like they come outside and they're being rained on. And the character says to Zach Braff's character, or no, who says it to who? I think Zach Braff is the one that gets told like have fun. No, No, Zach Braff's character tells the guy yes have fun exploring the infinite abyss and he's like you too man and everybody will say they didn't need to have that line I it's so that cheesy line. i liked it yeah, yeah i thought that was cool um bird hated the scream into the abyss but i was like i don't know man <sighs> you need I like that. it you, i do is- i totally do i know it's cheesy but like it's right it's real. You go in the woods and you scream. Right. You have to let it out. Like that's that guy's so mom realistic. died four days ago or five days ago or whatever. Like he just lost his mom. You do all you do whatever you have to do to get through that to the next moment of your life. And if what you have to do is scream, literally scream into the abyss, you do it, man. And then if yeah. you've got friends there to do it with you, even better. Like, what a perfect culmination to, like, such a sleazy, scuzzy, scummy day. Like, and you end with, like, a bizarre primal release moment like that. I even like the stuff in the boat with um the guy and his wife where he's, like, he's talking about, you know, like, you know, it's a shitty old boat and it's falling apart and it probably doesn't float and... You know, maybe it'll fall in a in a you know mudslide down into this infinite abyss. But 
I'm here with this woman that I love. And honestly, that's all I, what more do I need than that? It just bugs me that, cause that, like that moment in the movie, both Bird and I are like, look at each other and you know, like, I love you, baby. Oh, you know, it's, it feels like what you need to hear or be reminded of when you're like in the throes of something like this, that, that like sometimes all you need, all you really do need is like, it doesn't matter where you are if you're with the right person is like kind of the vibe. I just hate that that moment becomes the like excuse for the end of the movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like that even a weird shallow reflection where he's like a guy in a boat told me that I just need to be like with you, girl. So I got off the airplane. I hope you didn't have plans. And she's like, no, I have no dreams at all. It's bizarre. And the they start kissing and then they have to like. I know his, away his friend from... doesn't know what the fuck to do. So he just like kind of looks bummed away from Which, them. Great acting. Yeah. Like he's probably one of the only actors I could pull that scene off and it not be like, okay, I have to shut this off. Like it works, but Jesus God, <laughs> it, <laughs> the kiss. it barely works. I know it. it it's like hanging on by a shoestring that that dude's like, well, you're right. Like what makes it work is how fucking bummed that guy is. He's just like, Oh God, gross. Like, what do I do? I'm like, st- I'm Which feels real. Yeah. Too, Cause <laughs> And he's yeah. he like get that sense that he's like oh, I'm standing on this like fucking mach- like big like bulldozer like an asshole now and I can't like leave so thanks dicks you know because <laughs> I'll just let them make out make out fucking yeah. weird I hate this <laughs> so I well, thought that apparently was like when Zach Braff was making this movie he or in pre production for it he was calling it. Um, Sam's art, whatever the main character's name is. Natalie Portman? No, um, the guy, what's the guy's name? I don't even know what his name is in the movie. I don't know. Um, but yeah, he was calling it the arc, right? And people were just like, that's not a good name at all. Like, it's it's horrible. It's a terrible title, yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad he changed way it. Way too on the fucking nose. Like, no wonder he couldn't sell it. He's like, so it's like about the arc of this guy's life. And what's it called? It's the arc of this guy's life. And you're like, don't call it that. Garden Mm-mm. State. There you yes. go. Perfect. Well, Yeah, and like her lying never comes back in any way. Well, she does not- it as a throwaway at the very end of the movie. She goes, but I love you. I haven't even lied in like the last several days and he goes is that true and she goes no and you're like well i haven't noticed any of that there's a lot of shit though that like starts in the beginning and then just doesn't follow through her epilepsy never comes back that pissed me off dude Chekhov's epilepsy if you tell me that a girl has epilepsy and she's at the doctor for epilepsy and then she's got to wear a weird funny helmet on her head because she has epilepsy and then you're going to tell me that she like has to wear that helmet because she had an epileptic fit at work. If you're going to hit epilepsy that many times, there has to be like an epileptic fit in the film. And she works at a law firm. No, she doesn't. I watched this movie. She does nothing at all. She says she works at a law firm. So like, (laughs) you know, precursor to this, she's literally just like in the secretary. I mean, you know what though? Like, yeah, maybe <laughs> fucking James right. James Spader's got her hands flat on a His desk. Poor girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. like- <laughs> uh, uh, 
You know what though? Like maybe she doesn't work at a law office. One, we know that she's a liar. Yeah, maybe she lied. I work at a printer repair shop and do that well as well. Mm. So you can just say shit, you know, like, so maybe she doesn't. Maybe she's a fucking weird. Maybe this is one of her lies and she doesn't have a chance to fess up to it because the friends all show up and are like, let's go get fucked up. Because I don't think that that girl works at a law firm. Well, okay, people will say like, oh, that you know, she does have her own character arc, you know, she has to work there for the insurance because of her epilepsy and she has her own real problems. She's a real character. All of that stuff, though, all the quirky stuff never comes back. Like it's just dropped immediately after we learn it. It just never comes back. It's right. weird. Yeah, it's it's like someone's trying to make up their own character like on the fly and just is like throwing spaghetti every scene. It's super inconsistent. Another thing, but that's like part of, that's the manic part of the manic pixie dream girl Mm -hmm. is like, here's this character. Look, they're doing all this shit. But then if they continue to do that shit, they just, there's like a sameness. And one of the things that seems to be the appeal of this character to a certain type of like male writer or director is that like sense of spontaneity or adventure or discovery. So the next scene, they're doing something different. And oftentimes you'll lose track of like that early shit because we got to do new other exciting stuff to keep her fresh and inspiring and, you know, like. It's almost like, you know, you know, like the seven year itch thing where it's like you get with someone and you go through the honeymoon phase because they're so fresh and new and everything's like exciting and shiny. And then you've, you're with them for a while and like the patina kind of wears off because they're real people, you know, and you're like, oh, OK, well, I actually don't like this thing about you. And nah, 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 nah. a manic pixie dream girl to me is almost like a character that is a self-perpetuating honeymoon phase. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you can always discover something new about me and you know like you you will fall in love with like a little quirk of somebody but a manic pixie dream girl is just a thing that's constructed of nothing but quirks so there's like no person to get through you're almost like like tearing like trying to tear through the quirks to like find out what the person is like and there's just nothing underneath it it's just like and I also make my own gloves and you're like that's cool but like who the fuck are you. i don't know but but that's how you know men wanted women to be um yeah i mean that's what you're right that's like why this character exists like someone idealized this thing i mean they still do right they still do like (sighs) people tell me that as they're not using it as an insult. Like men were saying this to me, like, oh, you're my manic pixie dream girl. Like it's a compliment. Like, like it's a compliment. Yeah. And I'm, that's why when I looked it up, I was so disturbed. I'm like, do they know what they're saying? That like, like that really bums me out. See, right? like, I don't know. That's that sucks. <laughs> I would hope. I don't know, man. I, so like most honestly like most of the people that I hang out with like most of my my friends are are women so a lot of times like one of my friends just recently went through a pretty bad divorce and we've had her over for dinner a bunch of times and she's kind of been like telling us like what it's like to try and date nowadays and it's 
you just end with like you like drain your drink and you're like, oh my god, men are fucking monsters. I'm so sorry you have to deal. Like I leave the table feeling guilty about my sex. I'm like my I dude. I let me apologize on behalf of like I don't know who the fuck raised these people or what, but like that is abhorrent story after abhorrent story. And man, the fact that like dudes are into this manic pixie dream girl thing. Well, and woman as object. Right. And Zach Braff says, you know, I, I was just writing Annie Hall, which is true. He is inspired by Woody Allen. A whole generation of filmmakers is inspired by Woody Allen and John Hughes. And what are they teaching us about women? You know, like, right. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's why it's important to look at these uh, movies and pop culture to see like, because it does impact the way that we treat each other and intentional programming um, versus you know, just frivolous throwaway writing like this, like he didn't intend it to be harmful, but sure. it became a sensation. I mean, even scarier, unintentional programming, like something I think about a lot, especially like having now done this, the podcast for like five years, you know, the more movies you look at over the long, a longer span of time, you start to realize that media Genuinely, media gives us in a culture the the language and the um what's the right word for this? Like like you know semiotics, like the study of symbols. Mm -hmm. So media gives us the symbols by which we define ourselves. If we don't have the if we don't encounter the idea, we don't have it in our toolbox to self define. So the way that people self-define is fed to us by media. I'm not even saying intentionally. I'm just saying like all the movies and television that you've ever watched, all the books you've ever read and all the ideas that you've encountered in your life is the lexicon by which you can describe who you are as a person. If you don't have language outside of that, if you've not encountered those ideas, if you haven't encountered you know, like if you've watched a hundred movies or a thousand movies where the way that a man deals with a problem is he pulls a gun out and shoots it in the head, you know, then you as a man, or if you've listened to, you know, like just to bring it back to something you said earlier, but if you've listened to like 10,000 hours of Joe Rogan's podcast where it's all like alpha male, like, oh yeah, bro, and I kicked his ass, bro. And then like, I fucked him up like real bad, bro, or whatever. I'm not saying that's all he talks about, but there is a certain bro aspect to that. And if you've seen a thousand relationships between men and women and in every one of those relationships, the man made all the calls and the woman was passive and quirky and that's what made the dude like her, then maybe you go on TikTok and you're like, I want to grow up to be a manic pixie dream girl and maybe you're Oh, boyfriend. it's survival. Yeah. So, I mean... You and what part of this, yeah, unconsciously are women knowing unconsciously, like, you have to do X, Y, Z or your mate will be your predator. The, I, that's something that comes up all the time, too, especially when I have, like, women on as guests. Like, the the horror the horror stories that I hear, the, uh, Alex was just telling me when we did Burning, like, um, when when she leaves a bar, she'll call a friend. And just to be on the phone with her friend between the bar and the car in case something happens. I'm like, never in a billion years would that have ever occurred to me. But that, it shouldn't be that way though, you know? And I, and I wonder sometimes how much of these behaviors 
I know there's there's some arguments out there that these are like inborn behaviors and you know like it's like the, this human animal thing but I all you gotta wonder what the effect of like what are films and television but American mythology these are our mythic characters in and I think it feeds into us and either consciously or subliminally or subconsciously affects who we are as people so like what came first right like yeah. the chicken or the egg it's the it's art imitating life or life imitating art but i think that there is well for i mean in my opinion anyways i don't know but the only time i've ever and really questioned this was like if i'm taking a massive amount of psychedelics uh i seem to go to this place where I'm seeing all these different symbols that there's no way I could conceptualize or come up with on my own um, or have ever seen before. So it seems like there's some type of a database that we're all linked to um, that you could get to, I'm probably sure through like dreaming or meditation or psychedelics or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I wonder that all the time, how much of this is projection, how much of this is programming. Um, and I don't just mean it like negatively either. Like Mr. Rogers was probably one of the most important intentional programmers of our time, you know, Um, an interesting way to think about him, but I, I think I agree with that. Yeah. He, he is a absolute, he was one of the few examples I can think of as an absolute force for good he's he's amazing he's important for for at least you and me in our generation like helped shape an entire generation of people and i think made the world a better place you know we need more people like that (laughs) we do but but it's hard too right like you watch a lot of horror movies and i'm i was always like I don't get it. You know, I don't get it how it's violent. So it must be bad. But it's like there is a nuance to art, I guess, and to storytelling and like and sadness and and grief and everything. The whole spectrum of human experiences. I think that as a I think as consumers of of art and media, we do tend to gravitate towards darker subject matter, though. And I think in a lot of ways it's because it provides a more it provides a clearer and more immediate um emotional sensation it's a, it's a stronger drug you know like if you watch something like a drama or slower paced drama or even a comedy I mean, comedy is not a bad example but like um there's certain types of movies that you kind of watch and they make you introspective. And then in the long run or the long term, you'll, you, the pleasure that you derive from them is like an intellectual one, or it's one that comes later as you process the information with a horror movie. That's like a hit of cocaine. And I'm, a, I'm the biggest horror fan in the fucking world, but that might be part of it. You know, like we gravitate towards like stories about serial killers cause it gives you the rush you get the immediate rush. It's like an, it's a total hit. You know, I don't have to sit there and like watch people fall in love for two hours. I can see a brutal murder and oh my God, I'm all buzzing immediately. Like fear is a potent drug. Rather than like into the wild. Yeah. Or or I mean, I, I just watched one the other day. It's like I we talked a little bit off mic, but I've been doing the artist's way. And one of the things you do each week is you take yourself on an artist's date where you nurture your inner artist. You just tell the world to fuck off and you do something that's good for your soul. 
And what I did last week for my artist date is I was like, you know, Bird is not always very into like the um, like the art house kind of movies. I really like that type of shit, but I get that they're not everybody's flavor. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take two and a half hours and I'm going to pop myself a bowl of popcorn, sit down with my little like, you know, my my root beer and I'm going to watch Federico Fellini's eight and a half and eight and a half is a life changing movie. It's it's two and a half hours long. It's about a director who can't figure out how to make his movie. So you're watching a director like trying to figure out how to make a film. And then you realize that you're watching Federico Fellini make this movie like on the fly. And the main character is kind of him. It it's an absolute masterpiece. If you're any kind of artist and you've ever struggled with like your creativity or your ideas, I highly recommend it. But it's one of those movies that like. It's not a thrill a minute. It's just like there's some ineffable quality that just seeps into your soul slowly and then like bleeds back out after you've absorbed all that energy. It sustains you for this whole week. I've been buzzing with this film. A horror movie will give you like a quick high for like a day and then the next day you're like, oh, dude, this Chainsaw movie was so fucking rad. But like eight and a half has changed me in fundamental, subtle ways and I'm, I still am glowing with the energy of it. So is it similar to Bowfinger? No, no, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, I'm sorry. I thought that was an earnest question for a second there. I was like, how could you think that? Just Um, in the plot. No, it's, uh, it's really cool. It's, it's like a, it's a super cool movie. And, but I don't know, like maybe this is just cause I like the Frankfurt school and this is something that they talked about, you know, like, no, I think it's true. I think that like certain things do stay with you. Like that's a mark of a good film or a good piece of art. Right. Is like, it does, it changes you in some way forever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what differentiates art from content. And this movie, I wouldn't say Garden State, like it changed me. But when I put it on, I wasn't even looking at the TV and I heard like the soundtrack pick up in my AirPods. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's like you go right back to 2004. (laughs) It's a time podcaster. So it's that's hard for me to get the nostalgia feeling anymore. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it did. I was just like, oh, man, like good on you Zach Braff like you're taking us home like I like it yeah it's it is a it is a time capsule of a certain time and place it took me right back I I like I could smell the campus man I could see the sunshine coming in through the dorm window like it it works this movie really it I would give it like if we're doing like a five star thing I think it's like a three out of five or like a 2.5 out of four you know like it's not 50%, but it's just a smidge above. I don't I don't know if I would watch it again unless I don't know if I would watch it again. But I'll, I'm glad I'll I watched watch it. it again. I'm glad I years. watched it this one time. I mean, you know, maybe I would show it to somebody. Be like, have you ever seen you know, like I could see that, you know, hanging out late at night and be like, have you ever seen Garden State? It's pretty it's pretty good. There's great stuff in here. I I love the. There's a line at the very end that like brought a, almost brought a tear to my eye. It's when he's talking with his dad and he says, "Let's just let ourselves be what we are. That'll be better." And then I wrote down, 
The manic pixie dream girl is like the quirky hand that holds the plunger that sucks the clotted mass of hangups and hopelessness out of the trauma-trapped men's souls. The teal lips that suck the poison from the wounds of ennui. Like... (laughs) 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 So true. Yeah, so... I don't know. I'm glad we. I'm really glad we spun this one. I truly am. Um, I'm kind of nervous about next week, though. We we should do Elizabeth Town next, right? Yes. Okay. And I mean, did you know that there's like a huge debate of who, um, basically, who stole this movie idea from who? Because. Elizabeth Town and Garden State come out at the exact same time. And it's said that Elizabeth Town was in production before Garden State. Um, I don't think there's a real story there. I think it's just like kind of what we see happens a lot, especially in the 90s and 2000s, was like all five of this movie are going to get made. Like, um, office space, uh, fight club, like the rage against the workman machine movies. There's always going to be like a certain subset of movies that's made every single year. Totally. And I think that they were just going through like the emo manic pixie dream girl movie phase. Right. I, I don't, who knows though, but it's interesting that they came out right at the very same time. Um, so they're always lumped in together. And I'm really curious to see just like what you think of that one compared to this one. Yeah, I based on the text that I got from you, like I'm trying to not go in biased, but I'm really curious to see to like do like a comparative analysis of the two of them next to each other. I was thinking about what like what you were saying. Um, I remember some like two volcano movies came out the same year. It was Volcano and Dante's Peak. And Dante's okay. Peak is the excellent one with Pierce Brosnan. And then there was, um, Oh, uh, like Armageddon. Yeah. And then it's Armageddon and deep impact came out the same year as well. But there's like always one good one and one shitty one. So Mm -hmm. based on your text, I'm assuming that your feeling is that garden state is the good one. And Elizabeth town. Maybe. I don't know. Like I personally like Elizabeth town better. Okay. But when I was watching it, I was like, wow, I'm going to have to defend this. Okay. <laughs> I better prepare myself. All right. All right. Excellent. Well, I, I will take no more biasing. I'll watch it. I want to go in it as cold as possible at this point. I like Kirsten Dunst a lot. I think she's excellent. Right. Yeah, so. I think she does way better than Natalie Portman does in this movie, which is crazy. We're going to see her actually again in this series when we hit Eternal Sunshine because she plays one of the she's one of the really. Tech, yeah, she's one of the technicians that wipes Jim Carrey's mind. That's insane. Oh, and that's right. Yeah, she has one of the best ever like drunk high acting I've ever seen in a movie. She's fabulous. Yes. So. Yeah, this is going to be really fun. All right, cool. Well, Cassandra. Let, you know you, what? It was Danny DeVito. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I told you way back at the beginning of the episode that we'd come back to it. And here we are. Impromptu musical number Danny DeVito.
Danny DeVito. That still makes sense, though. He also comes from that. He, he's also kind of an old school guy, although. Yeah, yeah. I, Robert De Niro makes more sense to me, but I can see I can see the mix. He, ha- he has a production company called Jersey Films, mm. and he helped produce Pulp Fiction, Aaron Brockovich, Garden State, Get Shorty and uh, Reno 911. Uh, that's a pretty incredible list of things, actually. That is an incredible list of things, so... One more time for the world! Danny Vito. I recently just saw Aaron Brockovich. Have you ever you've oh, seen that wow. one? Holy yeah, that's a good one. Fuck, that movie's excellent. And anybody of your listeners that if you guys don't, if you love Natalie Portman, um, but maybe you didn't like, like Garden State, I would watch Anywhere But Here because it's Natalie Portman and Susan Sarandon, 1999. Oh. It's so good. All right. Um, my Natalie Portman recommendation, other than Hesher, which every human being should see because it's so excellent, um, is Annihilation. It's a okay. co- cosmic horror, psychedelic, sci-fi horror flick. And it is one of the it's trippy as shit. I made the mistake of we went over to Bird's parents' house one night for like laundry night. And every night we go over there, we we're always like, oh, let's watch a movie. And I had my vape pen with me and I'm like, Okay, I've never been high around Bird's parents, but maybe if I just take like a little hit, I could be a little high and they won't notice and we're, we could watch some cool movie. So I went down to like change the laundry and I like, you know, just got like a like I thought a little bit high, but ended up getting pretty high. And I went back up and they're like, Max, you're a movie guy. What movie should we watch? And I knew that Annihilation had like crazy visual like psychedelic effects because they go into this weird like kind of pseudo altered dimension. And I'm like, let's watch Annihilation. And they're like, okay, put it on. It's like one of the most fucked up, weird, twisted, disturbing movies ever. And Bird's mom, the whole movie's just like, wow, wow, that's horrible. And I'm over there like, I'm like, oh god, they're never gonna, they're gonna make me divorce their daughter. Like I was so bummed, man. But um, but it's an awesome movie. And like, if you can hang, like watching it a little bit high too, that it is visually gorgeous. But yeah, so that's my recommendation. Um, oh my god. Since I introduced the show first, I know it's a terrible circumstance to watch that in. The first time I ever saw The Hateful Eight, I watched it with my like 80-year-old grandmother, and she's just like, this is abhorrent. I'm like, I don't know. It was her idea. I know you like Tarantino. This is his new one. I'm like, are you sure? The whole movie, she's like, this is awful. Um, since I introduced the show, do you want to do the plug your plugs first, and then I can plug my plugs? Sure. All right. Um. Yep. If you guys want to find any of my nostalgia content or any of my drama content or just any of my manic pixie dream girl bullshit in general, (laughs) it's on Drenched in Drama slash 25, I think is what it's called on Patreon. It's like what we have it under. Um, But yeah, it's Drenched in Drama or Cassandra Explains It All is my public feed. I do have... A ton of episodes on Cassandra Explains It All Patreon, but I've been slowly moving them over to Drenched in Drama. So, okay. 
There are def- there's for listeners of my show. Uh, I have been on Cassandra explains it all several times. We did Fight Club. We did Witches of Eastwick. Um, so go check those ones out. Those are super fun. Um, if you like uh, mine, I guess this will be in the main feed. So you're already here. But if you like my show and you want to check out the uh, the like bonus content, shout outs on the show, things like that, we have a huge number of bonus episodes over on patreon.com slash quillinfilm, Q-U-I-L-L-A-N-D-F-I-L-M. Um, you get all sorts of bonus content over there. I write little like weird essays occasionally. That's where all of my main content goes for the band I'm in, Suede Rainbow. We just played our first live gig recently. We've got another one coming up. I wrote a funk song about horny nuns. It's really fucking fun. So well, uh, all the updates for that are over there. And you get your name read at the end of podcasts, and it sounds a little something like this. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, all of the patrons who keep the lights on and keep the mics hot. Casey Scheibe, John Scheibe, William Rockwood, Carl Hartley, Kelly and Mike Wagner, Sarah Hartley, Jeffrey Morgan, Katie Clark, Leslie Ty, Baloney Shoes. I can never make it through that name. I'm just like so fucking weird. Baloney Shoes. I love it. Uh, Mariah Rosado, David Brady, David Breda. Sorry about that. Stian Cassandra Kroos, Deborah Himes. You guys are the best. You make it possible. Um, do you got anything else? Any any recommendations outside of the ones we've made or any other f- parting shots? Well, no, but I need to tell you about the VR because it was a transcendental experience. VR? V- yeah, man. Okay. Did you, know, did you know about this shit? Dude, lay it on me. Okay. The kids have had it for like two years. Okay. Should we say goodbye first or... I don't know. Do, the, don't do you want to tell the listeners about VR or do you want to tell just me about VR? This is some far out stuff, you guys. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. Uh, um, what do you want to do? Are we doing we'll it? Clo- on- we'll close it out. We'll okay. Close it out. All right. I'm going to go find out about some far out shit. Join us next week for uh, Elizabeth Town. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, and thank you again, Cassandra, for suggesting this. It's a blast. So, Of course. Later. Good night, y'all. Danny DeVito